Well, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me this evening to the Old Testament book of Song of Songs. You may be more familiar with it under the title Song of Solomon, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. We will be looking at this book uh, over the course of the coming eight or nine weeks. Um, Everyone collectively catch your breath. We're going to make it through this. Uh, We're only going to be looking at verse 1 this evening, just dipping our toe in the water, but it will get more intense from here. Let's get the big question out of the way so we can focus on the matter at hand. Why a sermon series on the Song of Songs? Well, I have a few reasons for preaching through this wonderful book, and I believe each one of them will help explain this decision. Let me read, or let me explain these to you before I read the text at hand, and then we'll look at Scripture together. First, it's a, the Song of Songs is a Holy Spirit-inspired book of the Bible. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Song of Songs has been breathed out by God, and it is profitable for us for reproof. Think about all of the, the thinking, the perverted thinking about sexuality and intimacy and love in the world. We are reproved by looking at this expression of godly love. It rebukes us in our sinful understandings and sinful practices. It corrects us uh, in our deficiencies concerning matters of intimacy and physicality and love and romance. And in fact, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Song of Songs trains us for righteousness. I imagine very few of us, if any, have heard a sermon series through the book of Song of Songs, and we're going to remedy that over the course of the coming months. Secondly, we are a confessional church. Uh, Our doctrinal standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says this in chapter 1, paragraph 2, under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And it goes on to list 66 books, which includes the Song of Songs. So our confessional standards affirm in the very second paragraph of their writings the legitimacy of this book as a book for Christian worship and instruction and investigation. In paragraph 4, it says this, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. The author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it's the Word of God. The confession goes on to commend all of Scripture as being concerned with the glory of God Almighty, the salvation of mankind, and the life of the Christian in this fallen world. And the Song of Songs certainly belongs among the list of those books relevant to us in our day and age. If we believe these things to be true, how can we possibly shy away from a book such as this just because the content might cause us to blush? Lastly, I think it's important because there's so much misunderstanding around the Song of Songs. And I think it's important for us to clarify what it is and what it is not saying, and therefore reclaim it for Christian worship and for Christian life. We live in an age where the world around us is trying to redefine love and make sexual promiscuity and uncleanness and perversion normal. In other words, to make sexual perversion normal holy by the world's standards, such as it were. And as Christians, 
We need to look to the author of these things, love and romance and intimacy and sex and physicality, to understand what he wants us to know and how he wants us to live in light of his truth. And there's no other book in all of sacred scripture that deals so plainly or completely with these matters. So to the song of songs we will turn. Let me read just the first verse in order to get us prepared for the coming series that we're going to engage in together over the next couple of months. This is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. And this is the end of the reading of God's word. Let him add his blessing to its preaching now. Well, tonight I just want to deal with the first verse in order to help clarify some of the misconceptions surrounding this wonderful book and to set our trajectory for the coming weeks as we unpack this love song. First of all, there's not a lot of text to to deal with tonight, is there? Just a couple of words, but we're going to deal with every part of it. First of all, we're going to see that this is a song, and that's important for helping us to understand how to interpret it. It is a song. Secondly, we're going to understand that it's the greatest song. And that adds something to our contemplation and meditation on this wonderful book. This is the greatest of all songs, and that's significant. And finally, and not most importantly, but quite significantly, we will see that it was penned by Solomon. And I want us to take our time to think about why that's important to us as we spend time understanding what God would say to us through this book. So first of all, notice that it's a song. Verse 1, the song. I'm just going to stop there. I know that seems kind of silly. I've literally read only one rude word in Hebrew, uh, but I want us to be considering why that word is so important for us as we consider how to interpret this book. First of all, the fact that it's a song clues us in on the fact that it's not meant to be understood literally, or perhaps I should use the word academically as if it were some historical narrative like Joshua or Judges or even the text from Luke that Rick read for us earlier. It's not meant to be understood that way in the sense that it's not a narrative or didactic or anything like that. It's not academic. It's poetry. It's a love song. It's meant to be evocative. It's meant to draw our attention between its lines and cause us to come closer to investigate what it means, to evaluate its beauty, to see the goodness that it promotes, and to revel in the truth that it conveys. It's a song. You know how songs make you feel. Of course, there are passages of of historical narrative, or especially when you read the Bible, that evoke emotion, but there's something about song that God has hardwired into his his created people, his moral creatures, that evokes something in us, doesn't it? And oftentimes we abuse that, and we listen to the sort of music that gets us angry or fired up or excited, rather than the sort of music that causes us to draw closer to the Lord and closer to all things good and beautiful and true. But this is a song. Now, young men and young ladies, I know there are a number of teenagers and, and preteens here, and I'm aware, parents, I'm very aware, my, all of my children are here listening to this as well, and as we talk about all of the parts of the person that are referenced in the Song of Songs, we're all going to be here together going through this. I'm aware of that, and I'm not trying to usurp your, uh, your uh, 
the way in which you're trying to raise your kids and control what they hear and see and think and so forth, but we're simply going to let Scripture speak for itself in the coming weeks. And so young people, those of you who are teenagers or perhaps pursuing relationships or preteens even, those of you who are newlyweds, let me speak especially to some of you newlyweds, I want you to notice that the only book of the Bible dedicated to matters of love and physical intimacy is a song, not a technical manual. And that's really important, isn't it? What does this tell you? It tells you that love according to God's design is not animalistic, nor is it purely about physical fulfillment, although we will read in this book things that that emphasize the goodness of physical fulfillment and intimacy. Rather, God wants you to think about love and relationship and courtship and fellowship and intimacy in emotional terms, in poetic terms. It's a romantic theme. A thing. It woos and courts the one that it loves. Biblical love and intimacy sings, in other words. It elicits feelings. It's captivated by beauty. It's interested in taking its time and saying things that are worth saying in a way that's worth saying them. And that is far different than the sort of idea of sexuality and relationship and intimacy that the world would pass in front of you on social media or in movies or in your social circles. It's a slow burning wick that we read here in the Song of Songs, and it elicits the passion of a flame, but it doesn't happen quickly, and it's not interested in itself. It's interested in the one that it loves. And I want you to be aware that God's idea of love and sex are not chemical and mechanical. The world wants to give you a how-to manual of the operations of intimacy in order to best fulfill your own needs. But Scripture shows us that true love and fulfilling intimacy are much, much more than that. And they're interested in the other person far more than they're interested in themselves. And they're interested in the whole person the emotional person, the spiritual person, far more than just the physical person. But don't miss this. It is interested in the physical person. And we're not going to shy away from the fact that in God's economy, sexual intimacy does not minimize physicality and elevate spirituality. Rather, it's holistic. And it wants us to recognize that God has made us this way to experience relationship and intimacy a certain way and to enjoy it for his glory and for our pleasure in his context, in his context. Well, the fact that it's an ancient Near Eastern love song has caused interpretive problems throughout the ages. There are a few schools of thought on how to interpret this book, and I think it's important to go over these and to state plainly what our interpretive grid will be as we explore this book together in the coming months. Now, I'm sure you've all heard this illustration before. You know about the pastor who was asked to speak at the youth conference, and he was a little bit uneasy with talking with all the kids, so he thought, I need to to sort of lighten the mood for my own sake and for these kids. I want them to know that I'm I'm okay, I'm cool, like I can chill out and and, let my hair down, such as it were. Um, And so he, he starts off with a joke. Right? And he wants to get, he wants to get the, the young people involved in, in the dialogue. And he says, okay, everybody, uh, I got a question for you. What's, uh, what's small and gray and fluffy and has a big bushy tail and, and eats acorns? Nothing. Dead silence. And he looks around and he's like, what? 
And he asks the question again, total silence. And this goes on for a couple rounds. He keeps trying to add some detail, add some explanation about, about this creature he's describing. And no one's answering. And finally, this little boy in the back bravely puts his hand up and he says, Pastor, I, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like you're describing a squirrel. <laughs> well, this sort of allegorical interpretation of the song has been the majority report throughout the history of the church. It's why Cyril of Alexandria said in chapter 1, verse 13, listen to me as I read chapter 1, verse 13, uh, the woman speaking here, (coughs) she says, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. And Cyril of Alexandria said, that won't do. And so he tried to argue in a sermon that the, the sachet of myrrh that lies between her breasts is Jesus coming between the covenants. That he arrived between the old covenant and the new. That's an allegorical interpretation. I think you already understand why that's dangerous. There's no controlling features on that sort of approach to scripture, is there? There's nothing that keeps everything from being a squirrel. Bernard of Clairvaux preached over 80 sermons on the opening chapters of this alone to a room full of monks because he simply spiritualized every possible interpretation and allegorized it to the degree that it meant nothing about what it actually said. Each sermon was riddled with allegories. And the problem with this is that there are no boundaries. And so you as a congregation are are then left to the whims of whoever's interpreting it for you. And it could be across a spectrum of understandings or thoughts. It's whatever... The interpreter wants it to be. Every little thing is an allegory of Christ. Everything about the woman is an allegory of the church. Everything about their relationship is an allegory of Christ coming to earth and pursuing us in salvation. And in this case, the squirrel is Jesus because like squirrels, Jesus is busily storing up souls in heaven. And like squirrels, Jesus is industrious and hardworking in bringing many to salvation. And that's all you have with allegorical interpretation of the song. It cannot be that. Then you have this naturalistic approach. In this case, the squirrel is simply a squirrel. There's nothing more to see here. It's just a squirrel. In this school of thought, the song is nothing more than an academic treatise on love, sex, courtship, and etc. It becomes somewhat crass, sometimes embarrassing, and it talks about things that we probably shouldn't talk about in church or with young children, lest they accidentally lead to dancing. And that's what the naturalistic approach does with the Song of Songs. In this case, you end up with the ancient Jewish tradition that stated that young men should not read the song until he is 30 years old, lest he be consumed with lustful thoughts. Well, the problem then is if this is God's actual instruction for romance and love and intimacy and courtship, how is a young man to consider what it means to pursue a woman in relationship before 30? He'll end up with a worldly interpretation or a minimized understanding of God's thoughts on these things and only discover what God wants when he's old enough to read it. The ancient Jewish people said that women shouldn't read the song at all, lest it lead them to pursue adulterous desires. The problem here is that while the song certainly does describe realities of sexual intimacy and romantic love, it is so much more than that. And how do we know that it's more than that? How do we know that it's not just an instruction manual on marriage and dating and intimacy? Well, because we already read and talked about 2 Timothy chapter 3, didn't we? That it instructs us on more than that. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, by the way, we're all familiar with verse 16, which tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God, expired, we should say. But what's the verse before that say? What do verses 14 and 15 tell us? They tell us that Paul tells Timothy to not forget the sacred writings, which he has known from infancy, the sacred writings being the Old Testament, by the way, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, absent the new, Paul tells Timothy in the early church era that it is able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And he does not parenthetically remark, except for that erotic song. All of it is breathed out by God and profitable for us to come to know Christ better. And so the song has to be more than just a naturalistic thing, doesn't it? Jesus himself, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, met with a number of his, uh, two of his disciples and interpreted for them how the law and the prophets and the writings, which include all of this wisdom, literature, and poetry, spoke of him. So we know it must be more than just a naturalistic understanding. It is an inspired song about a topic that God cares deeply about. It's about physical realities, which he created and called them very good. It's about relationships which he himself loves and intends for his glory and our good. So back to our squirrel illustration. What if the Song of Songs, the squirrel is actually a squirrel, but the squirrel lives in a world that God created? And he exists under the watch care of a kind and benevolent Lord who opens his hand to feed all his needy creatures and who has compassion on all that he's made. What if the squirrel really is a squirrel, but it lives in God's world and God's the one that made it? Now we can see that the song really is about physical intimacy, which God designed. And it's about love and romance, which God intends for many of his people to experience and enjoy. And these things, rather than viewed through secular lenses, are understood in light of God's design for them as gifts from a kind creator to people that he designed to experience the sort of things that are written about in this letter or in this song. Wouldn't that change the way you would read the song? It's not just an instruction manual, and it's certainly not an allegory. But it does talk about real, physical things that God intends for you, his people, to experience within the paradigm that he created it for. And that's what the song gives us. For the Christian, in other words, when we think of the physical realities poetically described in this book, our hearts and minds are lifted up beyond the simple physicality of it all to the love of all loves, which is Christ's love for us. Now, the Shulamite woman is not the church, and Solomon and the shepherd are not Christ, but they do draw our attention upward, don't they, as Christians? When I look at a beautiful painting, I don't believe that Van Gogh is a type of God. I believe that he's expressing a gift that God gave him for our enjoyment as an artist. 
Does that make sense? And that's what Solomon is giving us here in this beautiful love poem. We don't need to allegorize each element or explain away the awkward bits by spiritualizing them. God does not need us to apologize for romance or for passion or for our bodies or for our desires. He made them. Does God blush in Genesis chapter 2 when Adam, upon looking at his naked wife for the first time, exclaims, finally, God made him for her for him, didn't he? And he made them to fit together physically, and he gave her to Adam uncovered in all of her beauty. And God didn't blush about that. It's okay that this is going to say things that we probably wouldn't invite our neighbors over to talk about at the dining room table. This is a safe place for us to see what God's Word has to say for His people and not to be embarrassed by it. And it's a shame that throughout history, far too many preachers of the Word have shied away from this book because of its uncomfortable context and topics, or they've tried to spiritualize it in order to make it more okay to talk about the physical parts of men and women that God has made. We don't need to be embarrassed by the Song of Songs. It's God's song. Well, not only is it a song, a poem, it's also the greatest song. Look at the first verse again with me. It says, the song of songs, the song of songs. It is a superlative description. It's the greatest song. It's the finest of love poems. Your mind, I'm sure, hears echoes of phrases like, the king of kings and the lord of lords, or perhaps the holy of holies comes to mind. Now, Solomon wrote along a lot of songs. Do you know this? If you were to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4, and you don't need to, I'll turn there, but I'll, I'll read it for us. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, it tells us about Solomon, this great wise man, and all the things that he wrote down, and all the things that he studied, and all the things that he did. And it tells us in verse 32, he, being Solomon, also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, wrote 1,005 songs, and the spirit-inspired title of this one is The Best Song. It's the song of songs. Solomon wrote many songs that were surely amazing. This one's just the most amazing, according to the Holy Spirit, because it deals with the most amazing topic Do you know that none of the rest of his songs exist today? Prayers of Solomon, Proverbs of Solomon, sure we've got some of those. Songs, none. I imagine some of you more musical people here could put some Proverbs to song or to music, but as far as the thousand and five that exist, God was pleased to save one of them, the best one of them for us and to include it in Scripture. It's the most amazing song because it deals with the most amazing topic, doesn't it? Love, intimacy, relationship. Just like there are many kings, but Jesus is surely the best king. He's the king of kings. Surely many things were made holy for use in the tabernacle and temple, weren't they? Sprinkled with blood, made especially for the worship of God Almighty, set apart, but at the center of the tabernacle At the center of the temple, there was one place that was especially set apart, and they called it the Holy of Holies, for in that place, 
God's presence dwelled. There was a second century rabbi named Rabbi Akiba, and he said, in all the world there is nothing equal to the day on which the song of songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but the song is the holy of holies. Now, of course, there's some hyperbole there, but we ought to think of the song in this way. It's inspired scripture, and according to God's estimation of it, it's the best song in the Bible. Wow. The song of songs, really? What about Moses and Miriam's song back in Exodus chapter 15? What about Mary's Magnificat, right? There's some good songs in the Bible. And this is the song of them all. Now, let me ask you a question. If this is God's interpretation of this song, that it is so great, so fine, so good, why are we so slow to engage with it, so hesitant to study it or to hear it preached, or, may I ask, to teach it to our children? Don't you think we ought to reclaim God's authority over sex and love and marriage and teach it to our children from the Word of God? to teach it to ourselves from the Word of God? I don't even, I I hesitate to even mention the things that are being taught to our children in schools and in public circles and online and in movies and television shows and video games and every other such form of media. I shudder to think about them. Now let me ask you, really, Is that where your children are learning about God's design for their body? And the way that they ought to give it to someone and someone else ought to give theirs to them in in marriage and in intimacy? We have right here from God instruction on these things. And we shouldn't be slow to teach them to our children. Now, I understand there's an age appropriateness to some of this, and, and I leave that to you wise, discerning parents to engage with. Uh, I'll be as uh, gentle as I can in the coming weeks as we unpack this book together. But I do think that it's a shame that in many homes and in many churches and on many bookshelves, there's a distinct absence of engagement with this wonderful song from our great God. This is the book that parents ought to be teaching their children before they begin courting and pursuing love. It's the book that newlyweds ought to read together daily to instruct them in marital bliss. It's the book that you older couples ought to read again and again to remind yourselves of the passion of lifelong love, intimacy, and commitment before God. I'm not a poetic person. But this book is a wonderful reminder of what it means to be a romantic person, a committed person, a passionate person, an emotional person who loves the one that God has given them with everything that you have. Well, lastly, I want us to see who the author of this Song of Songs is. It tells us, here in verse 1, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Now, I don't believe that there's a reason to doubt that Solomon is the author. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that it's his, but many people, critical scholars, have rejected Solomonic authorship for a number of reasons. And you can guess what they are. They're pretty obvious. Solomon's promiscuous ways, 
The fact that he had a thousand women in his harem, 700 wives and 300 concubines. How could someone like Solomon write on a topic like this and be considered worthy of such a task? How could a man who failed more than anyone else in the realm of marriage and sex write a book on the subject? And that's the reason why most people doubt that Solomon authored. Perhaps it's about Solomon's wise sort of interpretation of love. Perhaps this is a reflection on the very first relationship that Solomon pursued, which was itself pure, and after that he kind of went off the rails. That's what critical scholars will say. I disagree. I think there's a number of reasons that we ought to believe that this is Solomon's, and I want to tell you why it's important that he wrote it. First of all, the Hebrew construction, and this is very technical, so bear with me for a moment. I don't normally do this, but I think it will help explain uh, uh, my point. The Hebrew construction of the first verse, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, Shir Hasharim Ashir Lishalamo, this construction, Lishalamo, means of Solomon. It may be translated about Solomon. But elsewhere, this same construction is used of the Psalms of David in the Psalter. You know in the Psalms, you have these superscriptions. Turn with me back to Psalm chapter 3, okay? Psalm chapter 3. You'll see this very plainly. This is the psalm when David fled from Absalom, his son. And it says, there's a little superscription there. Do you see it? It's in finer print and it's smaller font probably than the rest of the psalm. You see that in your Bible? That's part of the original Hebrew text. And it's worth knowing that that means that this part of it comes to us in the original manuscripts. We consider this part of the inspired portion of the Word of God. This is not your editor's uh, block uh, paragraph title, right? This is, like above it says, save me, O my God. That's how my Bible editors titled this psalm. The inspired title is, A Psalm of David, Le David, the same construction as the, of Solomon, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay, so you say to me, that's fine. Perhaps this is somebody else writing about David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Let's jump forward to Psalm 110. I hope this is helpful in your own personal study of Scripture, and I think it's worth our time. Psalm 110 begins with this superscription, okay? A psalm of David, la David mismor, a psalm of David. Now, Jesus in the Gospels tells us explicitly that David wrote this psalm. It's not a psalm about David. It's not a psalm concerning David and his life or his lifestyle or his teaching or his preaching. It was a psalm that David wrote, and Jesus tells us that very plainly. And the same construction of David is used here in the Song of Songs, the Song of Songs of Solomon, which is he possesses it because he's the one that penned it. That's very important. The text says that it was written by Solomon, and I believe that the rest of Scripture, let's go back to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 7, tells us that Scripture is to be interpreted utilizing the rest of Scripture. That's what we're trying to do right now, okay? But more importantly, more importantly, why do I think that Solomon wrote it, and why do I think it's important for us, significant to us, that he did? Think about this for a moment with me. 
Who better to write about pure love and pure sexual enjoyment and pure romance than Solomon, the one who had messed it up so badly? Isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God to call a man who had made a mess of sex and romance and love and faithfulness and give him the duty to write the greatest song about these things? Didn't we see this this morning that he used Peter, the apostle of foot and mouth disease, to pen letters about grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness? Didn't he use the persecutor of the church to build up the church in the first century, the Apostle Paul? Didn't he use an adulterous murderer, David, to write about repentance and contrition? Didn't he use a Moabite woman, an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter, a Hittite woman, a prostitute Canaanite, and a virgin girl to bring the Savior of the world into into being in our world? Didn't he use a Roman guard and a Gentile overlord and jealous Jews to bring about his plan of salvation for you and for me? Isn't it just like God to do this? To use empty, weak, broken, totally depraved vessels like me and like you to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he does. Who else could write the Song of Songs than a man like Solomon? God takes the worst of the worst, sinners like me and like you, and gives us a seat at his table and a place in his kingdom and a mission on his field to do the work that he intends to accomplish in this world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that God would use someone like Solomon to write the Song of Songs? It's just like God to do that. Dear brothers and sisters, I don't know what sexual sins you've committed, what things you've done, what your relational past might look like, what things you've thought, what places you've gone and people you've been with and actions you've taken and things that you've wanted. I don't know what those are. And perhaps you're here this evening and you think that there is nothing that can redeem your sexual purity. Nothing that can redeem or God can use about your past for his good. Years of pornography abuse, adultery, lustful thoughts, homosexual desires and actions. Do you not know that God redeems his people from all their sin and makes them a kingdom and priests unto their God? Do you not know that God uses broken men and women to bring the light of his gospel into the hearts of the unconverted? Indeed, think about this. He can only use broken men and women to do that because that's all we are. There are no perfect people with no sexual sin, with no mistakes, with no failures, with no lustful thoughts, with no sinful actions, with no things they wish they had never done that God can use to promote a sexually pure Christian ethic. He can only use people like us who have messed it up over and over and over again because that's who we are. And he redeems all of us, all of our past sins, and causes them to work together for the good of his people and the growth of his kingdom and the glory of his name. 
Isn't that amazing? It doesn't matter what you've done. When you come to the foot of the cross and repent of your sins, Jesus washes away all your sin and redeems you from head to toe and every part in between. No matter what you've done with them before. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 29 says one of my favorite things in all of Scripture. As he speaks to the Colossian church about his love for them and his desire to see them grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. He says, for this I toil, working with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. That's every time we open our mouths, friends. Every time we proclaim the gospel, every time we share our testimony, every time I stand up here and preach, every time you open your mouth and confess your sin and confess your faith and sing to the Lord and pray to God, it's him working powerfully in you. We don't bring anything to the table but our sin, and Jesus redeems it all and sends us out new, cleaned from all our uncleannesses, Ezekiel says, to go out in the world and proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He can only use broken people. That's all he has to work with. So as we prepare to embark on this journey together through the Song of Songs, I want to encourage us to prayerfully commit to turning our eyes upward towards Jesus, who showed to us on the cross the love of loves. As one person said, no one can sing the Song of Songs unless they've experienced the love of loves. We need to purpose in our hearts to think about love and marriage, courtship and sex, romance and relationship and commitment in light of who Christ is, in light of what he's done through the teaching of Scripture. We mustn't look to a broken world with a broken worldview that has broken ideas about gender and identity and sex and more and expect to find God-honoring answers. We must Look to the author of these things, not only for good answers, not only for his answers, but what a book like this promises us is the experience of joy in having those answers. What a wonderful thing that we're getting ready to do together. Let us remember again that it's only broken sinners, humble and contrite, that God uses to proclaim his glory, to enjoy one another in marriage to model the example of biblical intimacy and to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this inspired book of your word. We ask that you would guide our thoughts and words and direction in the coming weeks. We ask that you would um, help us to speak plainly and yet uh, conservatively as it concerns these things that we might not... um, unwittingly expose especially the youngest among us to things that, they're, uh, that they need to wait to hear about. We ask that you would give help to parents, wisdom and discernment to all of us as we engage on this topic, a topic that you care deeply about, that you've written about to us in your word. Help us to know you, the one true God, and what duty you require of us as it's exposed to us by your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.